from the Pitch Black Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another candlelit episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. Did you ever hear a growing rhubarb in the dark? I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll discuss a centuries-old technique that yields the sweetest rhubarb possible. Plus, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and titanically turpine trepidation. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you listening to the fascinating sound of rhubarb growing to its own distant drummer of darkness right now. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host. Mike McGrath, attention, podcaster and radio listeners. We continue with our new feature in the news, just for you audio-only files. This time out, we report on an alarming side effect of Jack Daniels whiskey, and it doesn't involve you getting a DUI. You won't want to miss the terrible tale of the angel's share. Coming up soon. Before we start the show, back to the taking care of business department department. I am happy to announce that I will appear at the Allentown Public Library on Tuesday, March 21st at 2 in the afternoon. The event is free, but they request you register in advance at the Allentown Library website. Be there or be square, cats and kittens. Kevin. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I am just Ducky. Thank you for asking. I have to be very gentle with Ducky these days because he's holding up Sprout. And that, that would just be a bad omen if Sprout fell over on this show. Um, where are you? So I'm, I'm out of Kennett Square, Pennsylvania. Okay, well, you're out of it. That leaves the rest of the world and the universe, <laughs> you know. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not in New York City. Uh, right. <laughs> okay, so you're near the mushroom capital of the world. That's correct. And uh, what can we do you for? Hey, so I I have, uh, you know, on top of gardening, I have, I would say, eight pretty established potted citrus oh, excellent. trees. But yeah, and, but, you know, as they grow, I've run out of room. So I was able to... Uh, rent some space in a greenhouse locally mm-hmm. and not thinking about how they control their pests. Um, I just dropped them off. It was, you know, it was worth it for me. And what they did was, I guess they treated everything with a translaminar uh, pesticide. And I was just wondering if my, uh, the fruits are going to be bad for a year or how, how soon it will run its course. Uh, you sent us an email. And uh, do you remember the name of the pesticide? Uh, it was uh, Rycar. Okay. Because I did investigate it. When I, oh, thank you. 
when I went to uh, the company that manufactures it, their website, oh my goodness, this thing is almost organic. It doesn't hurt mm. anything. So then I saw, let's see what the EPA says about this thing. So translaminar means it is not just a contact pesticide. It doesn't have to hit the insect. It enters the leaf system so that when an insect shows up and starts feeding on the leaves, they get the pesticide in their body. Um, there is great discussion and disagreement on what's happening in the fruit. Um, I don't have a definitive answer for you, but I will tell you what I'm thinking. I will add, by the way, that this stuff is tremendously toxic uh, to fish and amphibians. You have to be brutally careful about how you dispose of any leftovers. And worker safety was, was all over the place. Uh, but one of the things I did read was if the spray gets on fruits, you shouldn't pick and eat those fruits, and you shouldn't eat any fruits for 12 months. Right. That's what I saw, 12 months. I also saw 21 days, which is why, which that's what prompted me to call you. That's what I said, man. All it's over. it's yeah. all over the place. So uh, uh, do you have standard fruit trees? Um, yeah, the ones, yeah, I have apple trees and I have everything out back. And then I have a few citrus that are safe at my house in a sunny window. Right. So I could easily pick all the blossoms off this summer and just let them go. I just, I wasn't sure if it was, I just had to burn the trees or, or what, how bad it was. No. If it would ever go back to organic. Or, um, or... oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can recover. Okay. Uh, oh, good. so you do have citrus in the house that's safe. How tall are the trees in the greenhouse? Um, they're they're bushes. They're finger line bushes and a, and a and a key line bush, and they're only about they're probably like three feet tall, but they produce a ton of fruit in the summer. Right. So they're similar to uh, Meyer lemons to some degree. Sure. Yep. Okay. And you know these things tend to fruit over the winter. Did they have fruit on them when they were sprayed? Yes. Yep, there's fruit and there's blossoms on them right now. Were the blossoms on the plant when it was sprayed? Yes. Okay. So I think, and I, I hate to tell you this, but I got to be honest, I think I would remove all the fruits and all the flowers, as you are kind of suggesting. So in this case, we have to air on the side of caution. Once you can retrieve them safely, remove the fruits, remove the flowers, and then remove the oldest leaves. One thing gotcha. we can be pretty much certain of is that the highest concentrations of this pesticide are in the leaves. That's what it was designed to do. And you know, removing old leaves will stimulate new leaves that hopefully will be less affected. So, you know, you have to eat it, I think, for the summer. But then when you're getting ready to store them again um, in the fall, 
I I would be comfortable allowing them to flower and eating the fruit then. Okay. That sounds great. All right. I'm just glad it wasn't a total loss. Thanks a lot. Oh, uh, yeah. You always got to ask first. 888-492-9444. Mia, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being had, Mia. How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm just ducky. So, where are you? I'm in Worcester, Massachusetts. Very good. Is that where the Worcestershire sauce comes from? I think that's from England. <laughs> yeah. Massachusetts, England, same thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What can we what can we do you for? Um, since I read your tomato book a number of years ago, I've been putting about a dozen eggshells in my tomato holes when when I put my seedlings in every year. And it cured the blossom end rot, and I've had great results. And around this time of year, when I'm getting ready to start my seedlings, is when I start buying extra eggs at the supermarket to start saving those eggshells. And eggs are really, really expensive right now. So I don't think I can afford it. It's going to make my $60 tomato like a $100 tomato. <laughs> so, Come on, 20 yeah. bucks for a dozen <laughs> eggs? What's wrong with yeah. that? Yeah, it's so I'm crazy. looking for an alternative. I want to tell you what to do for next season. We start saving our eggs right after New Year's. Not our eggs, our eggshells. We crack them open. Mm -hmm. We use the eggs. We put the shells back in the carton. Leave the carton lid open 24, 48 hours. They're air dried. And then we put them in a special place where we know they'll be when planting time comes around. Um, Mm -hmm. Calcium stays good forever. It's an element. Now. Your question, and I I will just briefly explain to our listeners, that blossom end rot is a condition of uneven watering, but adequate soil calcium can defeat it. It is almost 100% certain that if you crush up a dozen dried eggshells, put them on top of the root ball before you fill in the planting hole, you will not get blossom end rot. But over the years, vegans, people who are allergic to eggs, have asked me what the alternatives are. The biggest one is calcium carbonate tablet. I don't know if they still sell those horse pills, uh, but some people uh, have them in their medicine chest from a decade ago. It turns out that calcium carbonate is not absorbed by our bodies. To build our bones. That's calcium citrate. Um, so they lied to you while choking you all these years. But if you have calcium carbonate pills, use a hammer and crush up a dozen of those and put them in the planting hole. Some people will substitute Tums, especially the higher calcium versions of Tums. And again, a dozen just seems to be the magic number. And I always warn people, don't blame me if your tomatoes come out tasting of tropical fruit. The other really easy way, and this would be applied a little differently, any organic plant food that is specifically designed for use on tomatoes will have a lot of calcium in it. You can see it in the ingredient list on the back. So in this case, you would drop the tomato down into a deep hole, 
to allow the auxiliary roots to grow off the stem. You would fill in the hole with the same soil you dug out. Then you would spread uh, the pelletized uh, tomato fertilizer on top of that soil and then cover that with two inches of soil or compost to help it get activated and down to the roots. Any of those things will prevent your blossom end. Okay, great. This is very helpful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And I hope you have a good season. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and inform all of you that our special audio-only segment in the news is coming up. This time out, we present a story from the New York Times about Jack Daniels. Yes, the whiskey, and how its evaporative angels are destroying a Tennessee town. That's coming up next on You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios of Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am, I really am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, a fascinating topic uh, that I was either unfamiliar with or had forgotten, but it is the secret to growing rhubarb so sweet you can cut the sugar in half when you use it to make rhubarb pie. It's amazing. We could get the Nobel Prize for this. Anyway, it'll be fun. Stay tuned. In the meantime, phone calls, 888-492-9444. Annika. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, how are you, Mike? <laughs> I am just ducky. So I am in Downingtown. I'm originally from Germany. <laughs> oh, okay. That's interesting. All right. What can we do for you, Annika? All right. So I have a, um, a tree that I planted when we moved to Downingtown in 2000, probably eight. So about 15 years ago, uh, an apple tree, I was all excited, and it had flowers the first year, um, and then all of the leaves would, like, it, it would just turn completely yellow and then fall off. Well, apples and peaches are the hardest things to grow in the Northeast, in the Mid-Atlantic. Did you say that in uh, the earlier days of the tree that it bore good fruit? No, it never really had fruit. It never came to full fruition. Okay, uh, planted in full sun? Um, I want to say yes. There are trees next to it, um, that, but it, it gets plenty of sun, I, I want to say. There is a black walnut tree. It's quite mm. big. It's not... It's not right next to it, but it's, it's um, I want to say the canopy ends before 
uh, it reaches to the apple tree that we have. It's a Fuji. Uh-huh. Uh, semi-dwarf. And I okay. knew about the pests and so forth. Now, and, wait a minute. And, uh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, semi-dwarf. So there is yeah. a visible graph on the tree where they put a rootstock and a scion together. I couldn't tell. <laughs> Can you see the root flare at the bottom of the tree, or is it a popsicle stick in the ground? I want to say it's more of a popsicle. <laughs> okay. You might have accidentally even covered over the graft, which would mean the rootstock would then uh, take over. And does the area drain well? Um, yes, for the most part. It gets flooded a little bit uh, from time to time when there's a lot of rain. There's it's like water runoff um, about 10 feet from it. Do you have a lot of land? Could If you wanted to start over, would you have another area with better drainage and less flooding? Um, yes, yes. We have uh, about an acre. Oh, good. Uh, but this tree is, is 14 to 16 feet high. Well, it's a big tree now. Oh, right. Well, um, but uh, it can be cut down. And do you, any chance you burn uh, wood uh, for heat in the winter? Um, we, yeah, well, yes, we do uh, occasionally. Um, a log of apple wood. Uh, thrown on top of a fire will scent your house brilliantly. Um, and <laughs> now it, it is a sheer joy. And you can also use uh, the wood in one of these wood-fired barbecues, you know, where you've got wood down there instead of gas. And You're that... telling me to burn my, my tree? It's a witch! Burn it! No, I, I think this would be an act of mercy. Uh, I think the poor thing has suffered enough. It has just too many things going wrong, especially considering all the time it's had. I mean, if you want, you can gently dig down around the base of the tree until you get to the root system. I would not be surprised if some of those roots were rotting. There are very few plants that can stand uh, wet feet for any prolonged period of time. I, I would urge you to look at varieties. Contact Penn State Extension or just go online, and there will be a list of apple trees that are resistant um, to insects and disease in the United States, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. You can't just buy by name or taste. You gotta buy a tree that can defend itself. Right. Two trees mm-hmm. will always do better than one. A lack of pollination can be solved by simply having another tree nearby. I did plant some more. There is another Fuji, and and then I planted a Jonah Gold, and and there are some other plum trees further up. Um, I want to say the drainage isn't too bad. In that area, I mean, it's it's fine in that area where I put them, and they're about fifty feet apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, are they um, producing? <laughs> they did the Jonah Gold one did, but it also 
seem to get that disease with the red, with the yellow spots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of it, um, we saw squirrels taking taking the apples. So. Uh, evil squirrels. Uh... <laughs> You know, they're a problem that can't be solved very easily. (laughs) But I think you've invested enough time with this tree. Um, I think it would be good to have it put out of its misery. Again, the apple wood is highly sought after for people in wood uh, who burn wood stoves and especially people who have mastered the art of barbecuing outside, grilling with wood. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, uh, you know, gardening is not for the timid. If you want something to come out right every time, become an accomplished woodworker. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay. You want to try to save this tree. Job number one is dig out a round the bark as it enters the ground. You want to keep going uh, until you find the root flare, those muscular roots um, that come up that nature are always above ground. And many people plant their trees much too deep. And that means the bark that's underground will slowly start to rot away. So that's number one. You've got to expose the root flare. On your way to doing that, you may find uh, the area where the the tree was, I have no skills in vocabulary right now, uh, where the the rootstock was attached to a scion. And that cannot be under the soil. And then I would suggest um, doubling down and getting another apple tree, one that is resistant to rust and other diseases. You'll have to look very carefully at pictures of apple tree diseases because there's so many of them. But get Mm -hmm. a resistant tree. Don't get another one of these and plant it nearby so that they can cross-pollinate. It should be good for both of them. Um, Don't use, what are you feeding it with? Um, nothing. Okay. Well, again, the answer to every question is compost. So okay. get, get some good quality compost and spread it around the roots of the tree. As soon as you see disease parts, rip them off and trash them. And, you know, yep. there are lots of people like me who keep a tree around just for the apple blossoms. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We got to go. All right. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Good luck to you. Bye-bye. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, kids. It is time for our educational feature in the news. From the March 5th edition of the New York Times, the headline, Whiskey Fungus Coats a Tennessee Town. Um, Whiskey Fungus. Um, which is a true fungus that thrives uh, around distilleries, bourbon, Canadian whiskey, Caribbean rum. And we'll get to why it is so prevalent in the atmosphere around this place. Right now, it's driving a wedge between residents of Lincoln County, Tennessee, 
and Jack Daniels, the famed distillery founded in 1866. Uh, you'd think bringing a lot, you know, bringing a lot of jobs to the area, building these barrel houses, you know, the whiskey has to be aged. They sell a lot of it. You have to put it somewhere. So they have, uh, they're barrel houses. They don't look like warehouses, but they are warehousing the aging whiskey. But, and I quote, for months, some residents have complained that a sooty dark crust has blackened homes, cars, road signs, bird feeders, patio furniture, and trees, and people who move slowly as the fungus has spread uncontrollably, fed by alcohol vapors wafting from the charred oak barrels of aging whiskey. Now, I'll drop back to the 1990s when I was in the wine country and distilleries were being very popular then. Of course, it was always the wine company. It was always the wine company. Uh, It was always the wine country. Uh, But a lot of entrepreneurs there um, started making beer and started distilleries. And when I visited one, um, the distiller in charge told me about, quote, the angel's share. So when this whiskey is aging for years and years, it loses a little bit of content over the time in the form of ethanol that kind of wafts out of the barrels. Now, the barrels don't leak, uh, but the ethanol gets out as a gas. And when you open the barrels at the end of, uh, you know, the timing period, you know, when it's had enough years, um, some of the whiskey is missing. And they called that the angel's share. Doesn't that sound nice? Oh, it's wafting up to heaven, making the angels a little happier. Well, in this small community, home to around 35,000 residents, it is the devil's share. Uh, It is well known throughout history uh, about this whiskey fungus. But this town seems to be out of control. Um, There are six warehouses of the barrels, known as barrel houses, and they want to build a lot more. But the entire area is caked with this stuff. Think about artillery fungus the size of Godzilla. Um, I've seen pictures from this. The street signs are totally obscured. The trees look like they have two, three inches of this black fungus. It gets on everything, and it is incredibly difficult to get off. Power washing, the neighbors tell us, does not work. Um, Several neighbors have used high-pressure hoses to wash the property every three months with Clorox and water. But the fungus always returns or never goes away. Um, Her corner of London County, says one resident, is going to be black as coal unless Jack Daniels installs air filters in the barrel houses, one of which is about 250 yards from her property. 
That fungus is now on steroids. You ready for some weasel words? Melvin Keebler, general manager of the Jack Daniels Distillery, said in a statement that the company, quote, complies with all local, state, and federal regulations regarding the design, construction, and permitting of our barrel houses. We are committed to protecting the environment and the safety and health of our employees and neighbors. Weasel! Weasel, weasel, weasel! How about the fact that their houses have turned black? And it doesn't damage property. Yeah, you try to sell a house that's covered in black fungus, and you have to acknowledge by law that it's coming from those barrel houses over there and always will. Now, Jack Daniels doesn't want to do anything about this. And I will point out from my old health rider days, you can't have that much fungus in the air and say it doesn't harm human health. Um, getting this stuff in your lungs year after year, this plague of soot that you inhale all the time, it's going to cause damage. Now, the fungus is pretty destructive, and the only way to stop it is to turn off the alcohol supply. Uh, James A. Scott, professor at the Dalai Lama School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, who has studied the fungus since 2001 and helped name it, said he was not aware of any research specifically looking at the health effects. It wrecks patio furniture, he says. Um, house siding, almost any outdoor surface. I've seen trees choked to death by it. It is a small mercy that it does not yet appear to have a negative effect on humans. So the ethanol going into the air is feeding the fungus. Um, this is um, an organism that thrives on ethanol. So the more of the angel's share that comes out, the worse the situation becomes. And this is total corporate irresponsibility. The neighbors have demanded air filter. And Jack Daniels replies, no, that would ruin the taste of the whiskey. The whiskey that is aging is in the barrels. The ethanol has left the barrels. Capturing the ethanol, rather than let it just leave the building and destroy the neighborhood, cannot possibly affect the taste of the whiskey. They're just denying reality. So if you're a Jack Daniels drinker, maybe you... um you want to try some other brands, uh, but I call upon the Jack Daniels company to install filters, capture that ethanol, which is not good for the environment, and be a good neighbor. Well, it's time for me to take another little break and happily announce that I will take to the road once again to appear at the Allentown Public Library on Tuesday, March 21st at 2 p.m. The event is free, but the library asks that you register in advance. All you got to do is search Allentown Public Library. Again, that's 2 in the afternoon, cats and kittens. You can enjoy lunch in the wonderfully resurrected downtown of Allentown. 
Come see me at 2 o'clock, and, and then you can do whatever you want. Oh, did I say the event is free? Well, it is. I'm reasonably inexpensive, Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we will tell you about a new way to grow rhubarb that makes it sweeter but it's new only to us. They've been doing it in Great Britain since the 1800s. You won't want to miss it. 888-492-9444. Kristen, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, thank you so much, and thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you for making it, Kristen. How you doing? Good, good. Um, so I had a question about uh, bulbs and specifically about allium. Okay, um, first, basically, first, I have a question for you. Where sure. are you? I am in southeast Pennsylvania, uh, zone 6B. Okay, where? Uh, I, well, I'm kind of between Philly and Lancaster. Okay, good. So no, I know where you are now. Okay, um, all right. So, question about alliums. Yes. So, um, I... So this is probably my first year growing bulbs, seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I've been gardening for several years, but uh, I kind of was a little bit intimidated by bulbs until last year. And then in the fall, I just got really, really excited about alliums, and I bought way too many of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then I ran out of time planting them. So I still have a variety that I've had in a box inside of a closet in my house through the winter. And I guess my question is, can I still plant those? Are they still viable? And if I did plant them now that it's spring, well, about to be spring, uh, what could I expect in terms of growth? Well, as you know, ornamental alliums are, quote, spring bulbs, which means you plant them in the fall. How many do you have left over? I probably have about 20 of the purple sensation. And then I have a bag I had a huge bag of the drumstick alliums, and I got through like half of that. So I'm not sure how many, but I have lots of the drumstick alliums left. Okay, too. so you weren't exaggerating. You went nutsy crazy. Yes, <laughs> I got a lot of alliums. <laughs> okay, have you checked the bulbs lately? Um, I did, and they were looking kind of uh, dry. Are they firm? Um, 
Yeah, I would say. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think your best bet would be to take them out of the closet and soak them in water for 24 hours to restore the moisture they lost in storage. And okay. then it's, it's, do you have like a beer fridge, an extra fridge in the house? Uh, yeah, we have, well, it's in the garage. Oh, that's but, yeah, fine. We do. Okay. Um, no fruit or vegetables in there? No. Just beer. <laughs> well, we mostly use it for just like, um, you know, bulk food, but usually there's not any like, uh, fresh food out there. Okay. Um, Normally, if you had a reasonable amount of bulbs, I would ask you to pot them up and put the pots in the fridge. Um, okay. Do you think there's room to even try that with some of them? Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so pot them up in a combination of good quality organic potting soil, compost, and some perlite. Water the containers until they're totally saturated, then put them in the fridge and mark the date on your calendar. Uh, 12, to six, 12 to 16 weeks after that, you can bring them out and put them in the sunniest spot you have. Now, this is going to be outside of their normal bloom time, but you would have done your best at giving them the chilling period they require. And with them in the pots... It'll make a remarkable display. I would not recommend trying to plant them directly in the ground. Uh, I'm trying to think. You can, you know, you can try, you know, get as many into pots as you can. Um, and then the ones that are left over, you're just going to put them loose in the fridge after soaking for the same amount of time. And you can try and plant them outside. If you only get leaves, don't despair. Let those leaves absorb all the solar energy they can until everything starts to turn brown. And then you can harvest the bulbs and store them, not in the fridge now, just in peat moss inside your house and plant them uh, around Halloween. Got it. Okay, they may need a okay. year. They may need a year to recharge. Okay. So good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Once again, it is time for the question of the week, which we're calling Dancing in the Dark with Rhubarb or the Noisy Secret to Super Sweetness. Gene writes, what can you tell my friend David in central Indiana, Beach Grove, Indianapolis area, about growing rhubarb in the dark. Have you or anyone you know tried this in the USA? Thanks. I love listening to your show on Saturday afternoons on Indiana Public Radio. Say hi to Ducky for me. There you go. You know, I have a growing suspicion that Ducky is becoming much more popular than me. I mean, he is a heck of a lot cuter, but still, yeah. Anyway, 
we were originally planning a tag team phone call from Gene and David. But if I had ever heard about this trick before, I had long ago forgotten it. So into the research rabbit hole I went. What I learned was so cool, I had to turn it into a question of the week so that its wisdom and revelations will reside at the Gardens Alive website in perpetuity, or at least a fairly long time. The technique comes to us from Great Britain, especially the, quote, Yorkshire Triangle in the north of England, which is not a place where ships and planes disappear, but a nine-square-mile area where this type of forced rhubarb is grown in sheds where no light is ever allowed to intrude. In fact, the crop is so sensitive, it's harvested by candlelight, just as it was in the 1800s. The website for America's Test Kitchen has one of the best articles on this, as well as a groovy photo of candlelight harvesting. I just hope the photographer didn't use a flash. Oh, no! Oh, no! As Cook's Illustrated senior editor, Alyssa Vaughn, these two websites seem to be interconnected, recounts, quote, Around 1817, a team of workers digging a ditch in London inadvertently sparked a horticultural revolution. The ditch was in the Chelsea Physic Garden on the bank of the River Thames. The spark was the accidental burial of some dormant crowns of rhubarb, which at the time was used primarily as a medicine. While field rhubarb is a warm-weather crop, fresh salmon-colored stalks started poking out of the dirt mounds in the Physic Garden that winter, the first of many surprises in the unlikely life of cultivated rhubarb. Now, Alyssa is such a good writer that I quoted that exactly with a few edits instead of my usual paraphrasing, which will now return. A warning. I have been to that part of England, and sources are... Sorcerers? Sorcerers are correct when they describe the region to be as cold and damp as the plant's original home of Siberia. Leeds was one of the coldest and dampest places I have ever been. This technique, like growing rhubarb the regular way outdoors, would not work in warm weather climates. Ah, but if you are blessed with weather that is cold and damp, you're in luck. Well, not really, but you can grow rhubarb outdoors and you can do this too. It starts with two-year-old plants that have been grown outdoors. Rhubarb, herbaceous perennial, dies back in the fall, but in the right kind of climate will show above-ground growth in December or January. At this time, you need to have your own personal growing shed ready when that first growth appears. It has to be warm and pitch black inside. Experts agree that even using a flashlight could ruin things. 
The roots you start with must be at least two years old. The only energy that will be available to these plants is stored in those roots. And don't force those roots again for at least two years. Replant them outside in the fall so they can recharge. This can also be attempted outdoors, the same way you would blanch asparagus to make it white instead of green. Simply cover the emerging plant with a light-proof container. Washington and Jefferson were very fond of this ancient technique. Then you have to keep things as warm as possible. Straw is the recommended, quote, mulch, but I think that soil, compost, and or well-shredded leaves would work just as well or better, but that's up to you. And now that I think about it, fresh horse manure might be the absolute best thing to use in this situation. I would bury the entire experiment to keep things even warmer and as lightproof as possible. Just make sure your cover is tall enough to accommodate the final height of the rhubarb. Whether indoors or outdoors, all sources agree that forced rhubarb grows fast, much faster than regular rhubarb. In fact, many growers swear that you can hear it growing, snap, crackle, and pop. Eight weeks is the recommended growing time. This makes your warm, dark growing shed superior to growing outdoors because you can sneak inside at night, turn off any outdoor lights first, and check the growing plants by candlelight, which is way cool. The point of all this? Forced rhubarb is much sweeter than when outdoor grown. The rhubarb grows fast because it's trying to find sunlight. But without that sun, the plant produces more sugars for growth. As a result, the stems are sweeter as well as less tough and stringy. Sources agree that you can greatly reduce the amount of sugar that regular rhubarb requires in recipes. A final note. Yes, you still have to trim off every bit of leaf and use only the stalks, just like regular rhubarb. And now... For your dining and dancing pleasure, we bring you the sound of forced rhubarb growing, courtesy of the Gastro Obscura section of the Atlas Obscura. Hey, if you like the music, be sure to tip the waitstaff. Well, that sure was some interesting information about keeping rhubarb in the dark, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, 
Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to grow me by candlelight. If I don't get out of this studio, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444. Or send us your email. You're tired. You're poor. Your wretched messages teeming, teeming towards our garden shore at YBYG at WLVT.org. I'm begging you. I'm on my knees. I'm not actually on my knees because I would have trouble getting back up again. But please include your location. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show available on PBS 39 and PBS Passport, and an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when a small amount of matter from a fallen white dwarf star gave him the power to shrink in size, which is not exactly what he was hoping for. Ken Queter is our musical director. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer and set decorator is cheerful, Charlie, Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page and send her pictures of what's happening in your landscape. Teresa Radke is our peerless princess of profound production. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Judicious Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Also starring Jacob Morris, Zach the Tack, and our beloved band of card sharks, roustabouts, and fortune tellers. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, recently told me, you can be the executive producer of your show. Nobody else wants the job, and the last person we asked tried to throw himself out of a window that doesn't open. I'm your host, and I guess executive producer Mike McGrath and I'm all giggly about finally starting this season's tomatoes so I'll be laughing at my seed starting mix and confusing passers-by until I see you again next week. <laughs>